You're listening to Work in Progress. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Work in Progress explores the rapidly changing workplace through conversations with innovators, educators, and decision-makers, people with solutions to today's workforce challenges. Last month in Minneapolis, I was at the National Fund for Workforce Solutions annual conference. There I had a chance to sit down with workforce practitioners, employers, funders, and other community partners to talk about the best way to elevate workforce solutions. Here is one of those conversations. Joining me on Work in Progress is Todd Green, Executive Director of WorkRise. Todd, thank you for sitting down with me at the SHIFT conference. Thank you for having me. When this is published, you will be holding your own conference, virtual conference for WorkRise. Tell me first, what does WorkRise do? What is your role in this workforce development mission? There are so many important intermediaries who are helping to address the issues surrounding economic mobility and workforce and how we create better opportunities for so many people who've been left behind in society and the labor market, of course, is a big contributor to that. WorkRise is really about building out the research. Certainly there's a lot of research that already exists, but there are still questions that perhaps we don't have all of the answers for but taking the research that already exists and building out additional research and putting that into a framework that can help to create more action and solutions that can address real economic mobility. I'll just say that our premise is really research to action. And we also endeavor to really bring together a larger group of stakeholders who can work together to craft these solutions so that everyone is operating from perhaps a common evidence base, but also that can craft and make decisions about solutions that have greater buy-in and opportunities to make meaningful difference around economic mobility. You know, to get to the solutions, you have to talk a little bit about what the barriers are. So what do you see as the major barriers right now in the labor market? When one takes that question, Ramona, If I was to ask an employer, an employer might say a big barrier in the labor market is I don't have people to show up and and who can come to work or who present uh, with a set of skills that meet my expectations for what uh, I need to accomplish my my business needs. On the other hand, if you ask the worker about what's really important or what isn't working, uh, and one of the opportunities that we see or that we hear from workers is that many things aren't working. And this isn't just true for this moment in time that we find ourselves in, but this has been true for the past four decades that these workers' wages are not keeping up with where they need to go uh, economically to be successful. But there are other issues that are also very important, issues around how they're being treated and dignity and respect. But more generally, there are opportunities about how they're accessing training, what types of training, what information they're presented with uh, that's really going to create the outcomes that they want to see to enhance their own mobility. On the employer side, they say they don't find enough people with the skills. Do you have any indication in the data that the employers are actually working to make sure that their workforce or those that they're hiring get those skills? I've seen some employer-backed training out there. But as a whole, as an aggregate, do you feel like that's being done? I certainly believe that there needs to be continued investment from employers uh, in order to help to access the labor market that they seek. So the first frame that I would present is that 
we're at a point where we should be thinking differently about the value of workers within the context of employers. So in the past, I think employers have thought about workers as a cog in the wheel. But perhaps if we reframe that thinking and if we view workers more as an investment in our process or an investment in terms of reaching our goals, then I think that also helps to shift our thinking about how we view workers. So with respect to that, we engage a lot of employers, and of course, many of them are now saying it's about pay, and I'm paying my workers more. Well, the reality of it is is that perhaps you need to pay more than what you're paying them. So while, while we've seen these increases in wages, I think there is some question about whether or not the wage increases really match what's happening in this hyperinflationary environment in which we find ourselves. So are workers really winning? Are they really keeping up? I think that's a a really fundamental question. And in addition to the wage issue, we've talked about benefits. We've also talked about opportunities for advancement within the company. How are individuals presented with opportunities around hiring, not just hiring, but also promotion? What, What are they going to encounter? How can employers invest in providing workers with better skills. How are jobs designed? Are they designed in a way that workers can feel like they are contributing and have some autonomy in terms of of that? And then a a couple of other issues that I think are really important uh, that employers are beginning to address, and that has to do with how are we thinking about scheduling workers? So uh, we're recording this and using some very innovative technology And technology has certainly been a big pathway toward how we're achieving efficiency with the labor market. But at the same time, that's also created some challenges. So when we think about scheduling algorithms, for example, and how employers are thinking about providing workers with predictable schedules, or in many cases, not predictable schedules, where employees have a different schedule from week to week or from hour to hour based upon the employer need. But that really is an impediment toward an individual being able to access training that will help them to move on or to advance in their own career that also, by the way, can, can help the company uh, themselves in terms of what the, that worker is able to contribute. You've probably seen the data as well. We've all seen the data that says it actually costs more to go outside and hire someone than to look inside and find that talent and cultivate it. And you get a much more loyal worker if they see that there's roles in places that they can advance. Absolutely. And I think the employers, particularly as we move forward into this continued tight labor market, that employers are really embracing that concept or the ones that are succeeding are ones that are going to continue to embrace that concept. And I'll just also add to that perspective as well, beyond seeking opportunities for workers to advance themselves. I've already hinted at this, but how are workers being treated? Do they have opportunities to express themselves and to uh, have some say-so about? That's a a concept that I think we're going to see more of. It's not just a generational thing. I think people like to say, oh, well, that's just such a Generation Z kind of concept. But really, we're seeing more of that movement, and perhaps the pandemic has hastened that aspect about workers want to have more say about their working conditions and, and also their job design. And I think employers who are going to win this kind of battle for labor are going to be the ones that that understand that. The other part that I'll mention, too, with respect to how 
employers are accessing workers is that we've got to think more inclusively about who works and who's a part of our workforce. A lot of companies have adopted many uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion frameworks. And while this is not anything new, the reality of it is, is that employers are going to have to think differently about how they're accessing minority workers, immigrant workers. Those are going to be individuals who perhaps aren't necessarily the, the primary targets of some employers, but we, we've got to think differently about how we want to engage and bring them into the workforce in a way that can add value to the company. So that might mean earlier investments in early childhood education and in high schools and in technical programs to help to support those workers so that when they are ready for the workforce, that they are on a more equal playing field so that they can be competitive in our work. Look, we need these people in our workforce. And so it's it's up to all of us to figure out and to redouble our efforts in, in looking for opportunities to engage that broader segment. And then finally, I'll just add to this, even though we've seen these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, in some places, it may be perfunctory. And is this really durable? Are we going to see our employers really making changes? And are those changes permeating throughout the organization? So while the CEO might be speaking of this about diversity, equity, and inclusion, how is that really permeating into lower levels and all levels of that particular employer or organization in order to really see the, the types of difference that we want to see. So if a frontline supervisor has not bought into that, maybe they never will. But at least it's important for that organization to have metrics and policies and programs in place to ensure that regardless of the attitude of that individual uh, supervisor, frontline supervisor, that they're that these opportunities for all workers are embraced and activated upon for uh, across the enterprise. There is this movement that they call it tear the paper ceiling, yep. and it's about skills-based hiring. Yep. And so among those groups that employers should be looking at are people who don't have a four-year degree, who have skills, they may have learned them yep. on the job, mm-hmm. and there's this screening algorithm that happens that keeps people without a four-year degree into some of these better paying jobs. So it seems to me that would be a trend that employers should be looking at. Definitely. And and I should say that there are a number of employer groups. The Business Roundtable would be one example of, of that. That's really looking beyond what is going to be necessary uh, for an individual to be successful and to think about what skills and experiences and to value those in a meaningful way. It goes beyond an issue of what employers want to do. It's really a cultural issue as well. So I think it's going to be important for society as a whole to also embrace that ability to do that. Once again, it's uh, one thing for an employer leader to say, I'm interested in skills-based hiring, but if I grew up and I'm a frontline supervisor and I grew up in an environment where I needed to have a degree, then I've got to undo my own biases about what that really means when I'm hiring a person into a level and how do I change my own frame of what's really necessary to get the job done and what do we want to see. One of the conversations that's happening at this conference, and I'm sure is happening elsewhere, perhaps at your own conference, is the definition of a good job. And something that came up and I've heard in the last couple of months is talking about jobs and the sense of purpose and dignity. And you want 
some kind of job that has, you can take care of your family, you have a sense of pride in doing it, and sense of dignity. How important is that for the employer to create that atmosphere? Well, it's very important. And so this particular labor shortage situation that we find ourselves in is really worldwide. So this isn't something that we're going to resolve next year or, or, or the year after. So we'll be in this situation for a while. So it's really important for workers to think differently about how they are structuring the job and how they value workers. So once again, uh, referring back to that. So there's a lot of evidence and different frameworks about what constitutes a good job. But you've talked about many of those uh, elements that talk about wages and wages and benefits and opportunities to advance workplaces that are safe. We still have environments. We take for granted that that all work environments are safe, but we just learned in uh, the pandemic that it isn't a given that employees are going to be going into a work environment that's safe. They also want an environment that's free of discrimination. And so we've got to think about what are those aspects. I'll also just mention that when we think about work, it's also important for us to think, and progressive employers or employers who are going to ultimately win are also going to be thinking about some of these other factors that are necessary. So I call them some of the social determinants of work. So how do we think about housing? Do I have locations where I'm making arrangements that are in places where people have access to affordable housing? Am I located in, in those places? Am I thinking about the transportation infrastructure? So in other words, if I'm an employer uh, and it takes an hour and a half uh, because I'm located in some far distant northern suburb and a population that I see lives in a different place, then are there opportunities around transportation subsidies or van pools or other things that I could do to support that? And then the big one, the very big one that really needs more focus is around childcare. And how are we addressing those needs of attaching more individuals into the workplace? We know childcare is much more correlated to female workers than the male workers, but there's still, there's a childcare expectation on, on both. And we've got to think about how employers can assist in terms of scheduling design or uh, providing some sort of subsidy to assist workers in addressing their child care needs. And then finally, I don't want to just talk about child care in that context, even though it's, it's such a big deal. There's family care. We also are, are seeing many more multi-generational families. There are lots of expectations that people have around elder care, for example. So it's going to be important for us to think about providing maybe paid leaves or other types of opportunities when individuals need to be strong workers, need to be away from the workforce for whatever the circumstance might occur, that they have an opportunity to reconnect and reattach themselves to an employer, even when life happens. You mentioned that location is important. You know, you want to make sure there's transportation. Yeah. Solutions are local. Mm -hmm. So solutions for the employer are local and for the worker. Is there a policy element to any of this that you would call out, that you would say local government needs to do this, federal government needs to do this? Absolutely. And there are numerous uh, opportunities here. And I'll just speak about one, and that is Mayor Dickens in Atlanta has begun to think differently about economic development policy. So of course, Many communities, states, cities, et cetera, 
have made investments in economic development incentives. And that is, how can I utilize tax dollars or, or, or uh, public dollars in a way to attract an employer or to in incent an employer to expand their business with the idea that that kind of economic activity that that business is going to create can really create bigger opportunities and more economic act activity for that city or region. We're really beginning to rethink a lot of these models because in many cases, even though these types of public incentives have been offered, they have not necessarily come with additional caveats. Generally, it's around the number of jobs and the amount of capital investment, but perhaps we need to think differently about whether or not those types of outcomes are really producing the t uh, what we would expect to see. Atlanta is a good example where Mayor Dickens is, is based. Here, this is a city that has achieved enormous economic prosperity over the last 40 years. It's home to numerous corporate headquarters that have been recruited even over the last 20 years. But yet when we look at the economic outcomes of the, and I'm gonna use this word provocatively, of the indigenous people, we know that Atlanta generally rates lowest among 49 or 50 of the top metropolitan cities with respect to uh, economic mobility. So how did this happen? On the one hand, we've achieved all of this enormous success by recruiting these companies, but yet on the other hand, this hasn't benefited. We haven't seen these opportunities be captured by the people who've been there and who've been paying taxes. So that necessarily creates an opportunity for policymakers like mayors or governors to rethink incentive structures about, well, maybe I need to add some additional aspects as I'm thinking about bringing these types of companies to uh, my community. So are there opportunities for me to think about, does this company provide pathways for mobility as I'm structuring my incentive program? So do they provide tuition reimbursement? Do they provide paid leave? Do they provide childcare? All of these other types of indicators that we know are really going to be successful and are important to mobility. There's also this kind of wage aspect. So typically a lot of economic development incentives are structured along a wage dimension. But beyond the wage dimension, I've talked about benefits. Are there paid benefits? So we've got to think more comprehensively about these types of programs. And I think uh, Mayor Dickens in Atlanta is uh, in the vanguard of leading some of these efforts around economic development policies, for example, that can be utilized to support those types of opportunities. And then maybe the other policy that I'll mention that certainly local mayors and, and others have an opportunity to also move forward is around procurement policies. So how can local government, state government and others utilize the enormous power that they have in procurement to ensure that those procurement dollars are really moving to employers and being accessed by only those employers who are providing these economic mobility opportunities for uh, their employees. So not just wages, but in, in many of these other factors that we know can contribute to mobility. Todd Green, thank you very much for sitting down and talking to me. Thank you, my pleasure. I've been speaking to Todd Green, Executive Director of WorkRise. The conference is virtual, starts today, October 18th, and runs for the next three days. Find the link on our website. I'm Ramona Schindelheim, Editor-in-Chief of Working Nation. Thank you for listening.